welcome to Posterity Podcast, a discussion of unusual subjects that touch the lives of everyday people from a Christian worldview. This is Mike Carmen once again, sitting alongside Jay Carmen, otherwise known as the Overlords of the UFO, coming to you from cul-de-sacs in two mysteriously undisclosed locations in Ohio and Tennessee via the internet. How's it going, Jay? Good. It is a comfortable, sunny day here in southwest Ohio. Not as warm as I'd like it to be, but uh, not cold either, except when you step outside and the wind's blowing. Then it feels a little colder, but better, obviously, than the snow and the weather that we got earlier Friday and yesterday. So, yeah, it's good. Good. We we got a little over two inches Friday night, Saturday morning, which was a surprise for the middle of March, but it's a whole lot better than that ice storm we had this time last year, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. put us out without power for three days. So we'll take a little bit of snow instead. Yeah, we got half an inch, uh, about half an inch. It started Friday afternoon. We, on Friday morning, you know, it got up to, oh, 50, 51 by about noon. Sun was bright. And it started to turn, started to get cloudy. And around one o'clock or so, the temperature started to fall. And by three, it was down to 36 degrees. So it dropped like 15 degrees in just a couple of hours. Yeah. And then the snow, actually, the real snow didn't hit till, oh, I guess seven. But we started seeing blowing flurries, you know, four o'clock ish. And that continued most of, the, most of the late afternoon into the early evening. But we didn't get anything after late evening, early morning Saturday. So got up Saturday, cold, you know, 20 some degrees, cold, 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 30 degree difference between <laughs> Friday and Saturday, yeah. but no additional snow and only about half an inch on the ground. So that wasn't too bad. Yeah, that's good. Changes in weather like that, I think can make you sick or yeah, at least put you out. Yep. Yep. Well, what are we into today? Well, today we are picking up kind of a follow-up discussion, uh, and I know you'll talk about this as far as the previous episode that was recorded. But today we're going to be talking about Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, a book that Michael explained a little bit that delves into the interesting background of some studies that were being done by defense agencies on into the unidentified aerial phenomena, which is what we now call what we used to call UFOs, unidentified, unidentified flying objects. Aerial phenomena is probably more accurate because it seems like some of the things that are seen are not always physical objects, but they are aerial and an aerial phenomena of some some kind. But the uh, the book has an interesting turn to it because although we seem to not have been involved uh, as a, co- a country and as a government, it turns out we actually have been involved as a country yeah. and as a government. So right. let, let you talk about that. Well, what is the book Skinwalkers at the Pentagon all about? Well, just briefly, uh, this book is subtitled An Insider's Account of the Secret Government UFO Program. So that gives it away right there. It was written by James T. Lakatsky, Colm A. Kelleher, and George Knapp. This is, in a sense, a follow-up book to the 2005 book Hunt for the Skinwalker by Kelleher and Knapp a book that really put this ranch in Utah on the map as being a site for UFOs and paranormal poltergeist events pretty much across the board. 
Well, what this book is about is it stems from the June 25th, 2021 Director of National Intelligence report that was delivered. This assessment was on unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAP, which we will also call UFOs. In this report, it clearly stated that UAP clearly pose a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to national security. If you're not really sure what all this UAP report was about, you can go back and listen to the previous episode we did. We did a whole full discussion on that report and its implications. But for those of you that remember Project Blue Book and the conclusions that the Condon Committee came to regarding Project Blue Book, uh, the Condon report was headed up by the Condon Committee, who was headed up by Dr. Edward Condon of the University of Colorado. This report was delivered back in 1968 to the Air Force. The Condon report concluded, I quote, our general conclusion is that nothing has come from the study of UFOs in the past 21 years that has added to scientific knowledge. Careful consideration of the record as it is available to us leads us to conclude that further extensive study of UFOs probably cannot be justified in the expectation that science will be advanced thereby. This conclusion was the result of examining all these UFO files from the United States Air Force, which took in civilian reports of UFOs as well as military reports. They also looked at the National Investigative Committee on Aerial Phenomena's reports, as well as the reports from the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. All of this, according to Condon, led them to the conclusion that there was nothing to be learned from UFOs, that it did not pose a threat to national security. And yet here we have some 51, 52 years later, this UAP report, which pretty much states just the opposite. So this is what brings us to Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, this book written by Kelleher, Kelleher Knapp, and Lakatsky. Skinwalkers at the Pentagon actually seeks to answer the question, what was the actual genesis of this report that was released in 2021? So on Roman numeral pages 20 and 21, I'm going to read for you basically just right out of the book. Beginning on page Roman numeral 20, it says, This book describes the first steps of this 13-year rocky road that culminated in the release of the UAPTF report in June of 2021. It describes the genesis and execution of a unique program run, which ran from 2008 to 2010, from the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA, of the United States that was the first official fully funded study of UAPs since the termination in 1969 of the infamous Project Blue Book, which was run by the United States Air Force. The name of this covert two-year 22 million DIA program was this, the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program, 
or OSAP. K-A-W-S-A-P, OSAP. This book goes on to describe for the first time the scope of the OSAP investigations at DIA, which were run by Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, or BASS. This was much broader and delved deeply into the psychic and paranormal relationship to UAP interactions. Right, right. It was that they were taking into consideration things that were being seen, things that were being observed or by people and by radar, by pilots, all these things. But they were considering more than that. They're not just considering the report. They were considering, I mean, excuse me, the reports themselves. They were considering the, as you said, the psychological, what we would probably call spiritual, mm-hmm. but other things that were involved with those with those sightings that yeah. don't get that don't get talked about. Yeah, this is really pretty huge. In fact, yes. it's very huge. Yeah. We've gone from the closure of the subject in 1969 with the Condon report saying there's nothing to this. These aren't the droids you're looking for, right? Everybody just move along. This isn't worthy of continued funding and study to this 2021 report that says, hey, look, there's actually something to this. We need to look into it. These may pose a challenge of flight issue as well as a challenge to national security. And this is connected to investigations done at Skinwalker Ranch, which look into UAP and also discovered psychic and paranormal phenomena. So from the very beginning, we're going to tie together with this book national security issues with UAPs and psychic and paranormal phenomena. Right. More than just a physical phenomena, there's something else going on. Right. We talked earlier, I believe it was in our discussion on UFOs in the national security state, that when Project Blue Book closed, the con- any conclusion that led to UFOs being of an extraterrestrial nature was pretty much taken off the table. Right, right. And now the subject is brought back and it's been funded as a study at this place called Skinwalker Ranch. And the the DIA is now saying, hey, there's something to this. It does pose a problem. It may pose a national security threat. And not only are UFOs connected, but so psychic and paranormal phenomena. I think earlier we tried to get into the subject of, I'm not sure exactly what to call it, the spirit realm and national security. And I think I edited most of that conversation out Yeah, because I, I thought we went down the rabbit hole and didn't really come back out, but we were justified in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and in thinking about this and thinking about the, Thinking about this current report from last year, which was required as part of a bill um, by Congress, this current report came out last year compared to the military and Condon report in 1968, 53 years earlier. It would make it look like there was this long period of silence on the issue. And from a public perspective, that's true. As you know, the government's not addressing this or nobody is addressing this from any particular establishment, government, military, scientific. But come to find out all along that there were actually 
others within those agencies that were paying attention to this. And the general conclusion was that since this could not necessarily be measured in physical terms, or at least no physical conclusions that were being published, then there was this desire to take a look at this, not only the observations, the reports, and everybody remembers, of course, the, the Tic Tac videos that were released uh, a while back that actually had been filmed years earlier, but had been released a while back of pilots and having these encounters with fast-moving, weirdly behaving flying objects. And bringing all of that, which brought all that back in in sort of the national consciousness. But turns out it's been in the consciousness of others for, for quite a while. Right. Yeah, but in their minds for a long time. Yeah. Well, this program chose to chose a broad scope of investigation, which included the psychic and paranormal relationship to UAP. This was actually agreed upon by the managers at the Defense Intelligence Agency and was rooted in the investigations of UAP at the place known as Skinwalker Ranch, which was first developed by the National Institute for Discovery Science founded by Robert Bigelow of Bigelow Aerospace in 1995. The logic for this approach can be found in a paper, which I'm sorry to say we haven't read yet, but it's a paper written by Dr. Jacques, Jacques Vallée, or Vallée and Dr. Eric Davis, and it's titled Incommensurability, Orthodoxy, and the Physics of High Strangeness, a Six-Layer Model for Anomalous Phenomena which is in itself an incredible title. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You, we can do an That's episode an just on, Yeah, we can do an episode just on explaining that, you know. Yeah. Well, at the very bottom of Roman numeral page 21, the authors say this. In appendix 1 of this book, it lays out in full detail an enormous body of data concerning the psychic and paranormal connections to UAP interactions which currently exists at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Yeah. In other now, words, the, go yeah. ahead. The, the, yeah, in other words, and, and by the way, let, let, let's add to this discussion something that listeners can go out and look for. There are some other podcasts that are actually interviewing the authors. One of those recently, uh, Astonishing Legends, did an interview with the mm -hmm. authors of the book. And it was just amazing what these guys had to say. I don't even like using the word amazing. Everybody says that. It was um, astonishing. It was astonishing. That's why it was on <laughs> Astonishing Legends. Yes. These guys amazing do. Amazing Legends. Oh, I'm oh. sorry. I mean Astonishing Legends. Yeah. They do long podcast episodes. They do. But they are extremely thorough in their research, and they do an amazing job. There's that word again. Of bringing in people from that field or whatever it is, the event or topic, because they've covered a lot of different things over the years. But they did a very recent interview with the authors of the book. The interesting part of that is that the authors of the book put it right out there. They said, you know, look, everything that we're talking about here in the book is documented. The Defense Intelligence Agency has been involved in looking at psychic phenomena as it's associated with United, or I'm excuse me, unidentified era phenomena, UAPs. They've been doing that. And it was part of a study that first began with Robert Bigelow, Bigelow Aerospace, and 
it's just amazing how that has morphed because in the past we would have looked at that and said, well, where's the people would have looked at that defense or even the general public would have said, where's the radar data? What did the person see? Did they try to shoot at it? What happened? (laughs) And instead these guys were saying, yeah, you know, we are seeing these things. We've tried to chase them, tried to shoot at them, tried to do all this other stuff. So now we're looking at the interaction. We're looking at the psychic and psychological and probably spiritual things that are going on associated with those very same sightings, those very same phenomena. Now, they don't want to use the term spiritual. That doesn't That's matter. okay. We're going to use it. We're going to use it. <laughs> you know, because when you say psychic, you imply that it's a human ability to communicate with others, other people, or other beings in the mind. When you say spiritual, you're talking about those other beings in an entirely different way. Yeah, you are. So. Yeah. And it's worthy to note that I'm sure the National Institute for Discovery Science has a cache load of data from their investigations out at Skinwalker Ranch from 1995 or 1997 until Bigelow sold the property. I would also say that as much as I would caution anybody against using the uh, close encounter contact five method, I believe that's what it's called, by Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project to get in touch with these, quote, these alleged UAPs. He was on to something in the sense that this isn't an extraterrestrial biological phenomena, that it's spiritual, supernatural in nature, and the means by which people try to get in contact with them are means which are heavily rooted in the occult and have been around since not too long after the fall. And right. All one really has to do is look at Deuteronomy 13 and 18 in the Christian Bible to know that Dr. Greer, as well as anybody at Skinwalker Ranch or the De- Defense Intelligence Agency, if they've used these methods, they have gotten into contact with entities that are very real, but do not have anyone's best interest in mind, specifically the will of God or uh, the needs of the people using these methods methods to contact them. No, yeah, this is not a betterment of mankind kind of thing. No, not at all. Well, why do all of this? Uh, The purpose of our podcast episode today is to really establish Skinwalkers at the Pentagon as a source, a secular source of research for establishing the relationship between UAP UFOs and the occult phenomena. This includes everything from shifting shadows in your home to footsteps to white and blue orbs to UFOs, wolf-like creatures known as dogmen on two legs. I have, once I finished this book, I thought, good grief, this has got to go in my section on demonology because it's actually a a very good secular source of of information on an area in our country that seems to be occupied with what we're obviously going to consider evil spirits that have a legitimate interest in deceiving and messing with people and even doing evil things to them So our goal is to present this research as evidence for the supernatural, even the occult, most certainly the occult, 
the occult view of UFOs with the aim of continuing the discussion in a follow-up episode, which we want to do, which will provide insight into this phenomena from a Jewish and Christian perspective. And the ultimate goal is for people, if they are willing, that have been in contact with these things, uh, suffered, been misled, deceived, at the hands of these entities uh, to actually find freedom in the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Right. We're, That's right. we're just completely unashamed of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and in saying so, we're, we're not assuming that all of this phenomena is that, but we are assuming that a good portion of it is. There's plenty of room for people to go out and misidentify things or see objects in the sky that are ours or from a foreign country uh, or that are, uh, what would I say, um, super secret aircraft of some type that right. one would think, good grief, that must be an alien spaceship because it's it's doing things that we know spa uh, our own aircraft can't do. But setting all that aside, there is a slice of the pie that of this phenomena that is not is not any of that. So one of the side effects of researching Skinwalker Ranch has been the reality of taking the phenomena home with you. And this has been reported by people like Jonathan Axelrod, George Knapp, and Robert Bigelow himself. That's a big clue. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of the many big clues people should get that says, hey, this is an extraterrestrial biological. It's right. something completely It's different. something else, yeah. They end up going in to study these things these experiences, these events that have taken place in other arenas, and just by having interaction with the people who were, you know, originally involved in some of these things, they accidentally bring something on themselves. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So our aim for this episode, we're going to break this down into five parts. We're going to do an overview of OSAP's research goals. We're going to do an overview of the survey of the phenomena experienced by OSAP researchers. Number three, we're going to present the virus thesis for the experienced phenomena, and that that's fascinating uh, in and of itself. We'll present their conclusions and discuss some of our own conclusions as well, and then do a follow-up episode. Follow yeah, episode, so, yeah. You know. talk about it from the Christian and Jewish traditions yeah. uh, and, and biblical evidence. Uh, and keep in mind, there are other religions that talk about these things, other faiths that talk about these things. But it's within the realm of a monotheistic approach like the Jewish traditions have, a monotheistic approach like the Christian tradition has. And in the power and blood of Jesus, which the Christian faith has, it's in those that there is an overcoming aspect. In other words, those other things may be out there, but for the Christian whose faith and power is rooted in God the Father, Jesus the Son, for that person, those things have no power over that. Right. Amen. Yeah. So. Well, let's take a look at OSAP's research goals, as well as Bass's proposed approaches. This comes from pages 20 to 24. Concerning their research goals, their objectives were, were basically pretty simple. Uh, when it comes to OSAP, as a part of the Defense Intelligence Agency, their program wanted to anticipate any future threat to the environment 
or places in which United States defense systems operate. So when it comes to UAP, there was, there is, and has been a threat, a perceived threat to the places where U.S. defense systems operate. There are, are numerous cases where UFOs have buzzed military installations and nuclear weapon sites. You could go back and look at a book called UFOs and Nukes by Robert Hastings. You could also look at the Rendlesham Force case of 1980 uh, over in the UK as an example. Um, when I was writing this out, I, I didn't think to tell you. Did I ever tell you the story about a friend of mine who was in the army, was doing guard duty for a weapons depot of some kind? No, I, yeah, you, you alluded to that. What, what exactly happened? How long ago was this? I'll have to see if I can get him on the program. This, this was back in the 1980s. He's uh, several years older than I am. Yeah, I have a friend of mine who was former uh, Army intelligence. And before that, I believe he was an MP. And at one point in his service to the Army, wound up uh, doing guard duty over a some type of weapons depot of some kind. And he said one or two of these bright lights came out of the sky from far away slowly came into where they were guarding and got within, I don't know how many meters feet of this area that they were guarding and started moving around and shining lights down on the actual installation where these weapons were stored. And they shined their lights around, uh, took the lights back up, turned them off, whatever, and then just zipped on out. And it was very apparent that these were not any type of known aircraft as they performed maneuvers that no aircraft made by people could. I, I believe he said they filed a report and all that. And I don't know that they ever heard anything about it again. I'm, I'm sure they probably didn't. But I just thought of that as I was going through this. I was going through uh, OSAP's goals that a friend of mine had told me a similar story. So I, there is a very real perceived threat there. Yeah. He would be an interesting person to ask because... He had a firsthand experience to be able yeah. to see that. When he talks about his military career, he's just a very interesting person to listen to anyway. You know, and he, he tells his stories very well. Yeah. Uh, tries to give you all the pertinent information that you need. But the second goal for OSAP was to assess the foreign threat to U.S. weapon systems for the purpose of understanding potential breakthrough technology application for future weapon systems. So we've got two research goals here do uaps pose a threat to the environment where u.s defense systems operate and two is there anything that we can learn in respect to technology for our own future weapon systems here is there anything we can learn from uap ufos really all this amounts to is what can we learn from observations yeah what if there are radar returns what can we learn from that if there's film what can we learn from that? Because apparently the DIA is indirectly coming out and saying, we don't have one of these in a hangar somewhere that we're studying. <laughs> if, if they did, there wouldn't be any need for this research program. Right? Right. That's what I think. So their purpose was to understand the physics and engineering of these applications as they apply to foreign threats posed to the U.S. from now to the year 2050. Why 2050? I have no idea. <laughs> but 
that's like what's written on page 47 of the president's secret book in the last national treasure movie. Yeah. I don't know. know. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Maybe that's something to do with the year 2050. I don't know. But one, one of the requirements was that the contractor who was awarded this contract would also have to do a study on the effects that UAP have on humans. And there's been a lot of effects of UAP UFOs on human beings. All one has to do is look through the history of reports. So Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, or BASS, was given the yellow light to take on this contract. They had some goals of their own that I'm going to just briefly go over. One of their goals that they had to work out with DIA was they wanted to do as much global connection of data that they possibly could. Two, they wanted to contact scientists who may have access to novel technologies who might be of help. Three, this is where the book comes in, they wanted to conduct a laboratory program in the Unitaw Basin of Utah and the Unitaw Basin in general. For at least 100 years, the area, especially this area known as Skinwalker Ranch, has frequently exhibited anomalous phenomena, including spacecraft and other objects. Yeah, and I want to point out something, reference back to something you said. This area that they're talking about here in Utah, it wasn't just, there had been a lot of anomalous aerial phenomena but the reason they included this study of other things, uh, let's see, how did you say that, that these other things like wolf-like creatures and right. moving shadows and footsteps and orbs and, and whatnot. The reason they included that as part of the gathering data was because those things had been observed in that basin of Utah and had right. been specifically associated with Skinwalker Ranch. Yes. In fact, a, Appendix 4 of this book is titled Background on Skinwalker Ranch. There was a local educator back in the 60s uh, who went by the name of Joseph Jr. Hicks who became interested in the phenomena and through his collection of accounts and research became the basis for a book called The Utah UFO Display in 1974 by a guy named Frank Salisbury. This book was evidently republished in 2010, may have been expanded a little bit. But I'm trying to think if Dad ever had that book, and I haven't looked through my library to see if I have it and have never read it. Have you ever read that? Mm-mm, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Look at, let's see, in the Utah UFO displayed 1974, 2010. I don't remember. I, I that that doesn't because that's a very specific geographic area. I mean, we've seen books printed on events that took place in cities, areas, things like that. You know, we've seen reports compiled on on the basis of uh, things and data from various states. But uh, that one does not stick out in my mind. I don't think Dad ever had it. I know I've never read it. Yeah. Well, that was the third objective Bass had in their approach to this program. The fourth one was to collect oral histories, very valuable. The fifth was to use Bigelow Aerospace platforms, the ones evidently out in space that he has created, I believe, to use with the International Space Station, but I could be wrong. Um, He evidently thought that being in a 
zero gravity environment might be of some benefit, but I don't know. Uh, the sixth was the use of the Defense Intelligence Agency's database. Who wouldn't love to get their hands on that? The next was to study effects on bi biological life. And the next one is the, implement the implementation of remote sensing or remote viewing. <laughs> this is very occultic, right? Yeah, it's very occultic. Yeah, yeah. very occultic. And the last one is the use of expert analysis from the academic research in aerospace communities. So what the DIA winds up doing is they say, look, uh, we'll help you with the global collection of data, number one. We'll help you contact scientists who have novel technologies that might be of help. You can do your study in skin, at Skinwalker Ranch. Sure, go right ahead. Collect all the oral histories you want. Will give you access, I guess, to the Defense Intelligence's uh, databases. We're going to skip over the effects on biological life, and we're going to skip over remote viewing as methods of study, and we'll go along with the expert analysis from academic research and aerospace communities, which is interesting. One of their conclusions is that there's a psychic paranormal connection to this but they weren't permitted to get involved with remote viewing as a means of proving that. Hmm. Which, of course, you know, there was a whole study done by the Army back in the 60s. I, the, mo the name of it eludes me at the moment. Yeah, it was during the, during the Cold War, yeah. Yeah. So let's get into the, paran the paranormal phenomena experienced by OSAP researchers. There's a sense in which the life of Jonathan Axelrod and his family and their encounters is really kind of a one-size-fits-all. Beginning on page one, going through about page eight. In July of 2009, Jonathan Axelrod is one of three guys that are working at Skinwalker Ranch. He is a senior aerospace engineer in naval intelligence, and his career had spawned an upward tra trajectory as the book says and he was very just very good at what he did he was uh, very just very good at what he did and he rightfully had a place in the investigations at skinwalker ranch there's another man by the name of jim costigan who was a former marine who had served in afghanistan uh, worked on some missions with axelrod and a fourth man by the name of david wilson David Wilson, I believe, was also a Marine, and his work experiences in the Corps uh, crossed over with Costigan's. Was he so, was he a fourth man or a third man? You third mentioned man. Okay. Three. Yeah, there's Jonathan Axelrod, Jim Costigan, and David Wilson. Okay, okay. So all three of these guys are on a hike one night at Skinwalker Ranch, and here's where this is just a fascinating story. Uh, they hike for about a half a mile and they're hiking in like 75 degree weather and they they move into a portion of, of their hike where the temperature just drops 20 degrees for no apparent reason. So realizing this change in, in temperature, they walk backwards about a couple of yards and the temperature goes back up into the 70s. And you think just a few yards difference. That's drastic, right? 
So <laughs> they go forward, experience the cold, move backwards, experience the heat. They do this a few times and realize there's this very defined wall of cold air that remains in the same location. So they, they, they move through it, they move on, and about 30 yards further on, all of them begin to feel very anxious. And as they walked further, the anxiety deepened and turned into intense fear. Ten yards further on, the fear had turned into mortal fear. These guys are mortally afraid for their lives. And Axelrod eventually raises his hand. They all stop. And he says, hey, do you guys feel this? And Axelrod says his heart is ready to just beat out of his chest. Everybody feels this intense alarm. And they all look around 360, to, 360 degrees to see what could be causing all of this. So they actually, Axelrod takes them forward. They all move forward. They begin to move slowly and cautiously. And again, that fear just continues to exhalate. Uh, I can't say that word. Escalate. Escalate. The fear begins <laughs> to, the fear began to escalate. <laughs> the fear begins to escalate. And about 50 yards ahead of them, they see a basically uh, what they describe as ghostly outlines of three old homesteads that are now in view. Costigan, however, begins to focus on something else. Evidently, directly ahead of the three of them, as Costigan is looking through his night vision scope, he begins to see an oval area of darkness about eight feet tall, surrounded by the night scope's normal green color. Now, I have no familiarity with night scopes, but he sees this oval area of darkness looking through this night scope, which has this normal green color to it. Costigan later went on to say that all light had been extinguished in that dark oval area. And Costigan felt that the black structure was basically radiating some type of menacing presence. So there's some type of evil manifestation coming from this dark oval black spot. So all three of them begin to feel close to their breaking point. And they're convinced that continuing on towards this black oval shape would lead to certain death. So without a word, they all begin to retrace their steps backwards. Uh, slowly as they walk back, the terror that they felt begins to subside. The mysterious black oval shape, uh, I, I guess they begin to see less of it. Uh, their fear continues to go away. About 100 yards back, the fear completely left them, and they evidently could no longer see this black oval shape. Now, this is incredible especially when I think about, you know, what I would say are probably three alpha males, right? When they encounter something that instills in them mortal fear, you know that that presence is very real and is not being, is not something that is being generated in their minds, mm -hmm. especially all three at the same time. So here's where, <laughs> as if that wasn't bizarre enough, here's where it gets even worse. About 10 days after this episode at the ranch, Colm Kelleher receives a call from Axelrod. And as it turns out, 
he says, um, after he had returned home from his Skinwalker Ranch duties, things began to happen at his home, not necessarily to him, but to his family. And he recounts that on the previous night, about 2.30, about 2 o'clock in the morning, while he was asleep, his wife Ruth sees a large black humanoid shape walking towards her in the, in the bedroom. So evidently, she wasn't too easily scared at this, but was very alarmed. And she turns on the light, and there's nothing there. So about 10 minutes later, she says she clearly hears footsteps coming slowly up the stairs. And all of this activity is basically being directed at Axelrod's family members. Uh, there was evidently... Uh, an, an instance where their teenage sons saw in their bedrooms uh, some shapes that completely freaked them out, that escalated the fear in the home. All of this seems to be directed at Axelrod and his family members. Axelrod reports that while he was on one of his missions overseas, his 16-year-old son Paul wakes up in the middle of the night with multiple blue orbs flying around his bedroom. Occasionally one would fly close to him but it apparently never touched him. Even after all of this, Ruth continues to see the shadow-like figures in her home, and she routinely hears loud noises down in the kitchen after everybody has gone to bed. So after, once again, after Axelrod is out on another work assignment, in the middle of the night, Ruth had turned off all the lights in the kitchen and was preparing to go upstairs when her eye caught movement in the backyard. She walks over to the window to get a better look and witnesses one of the most bizarre sights she's ever had. She says she saw standing upright and leaning against one of the trees in the perimeter of their yard, a huge wolf-like creature. So <laughs> along with this comes a deep fear of confusion and dread. So she evidently decides not to tell her husband about this. But three days after this, at about 10.30 on a bright Saturday morning, in the morning, get this, <laughs> Axelrod's two, two teenage sons are downstairs in the living room, and when his son Paul got up, I guess off the floor, he saw some movement in his yard that caught his eye, and he sees the same strange wolf-like creature on two legs in the backyard looking straight at him. <laughs> I mean, isn't this crazy? Yeah. So the yeah. following day, the family goes out and they find that there were deep cuts in the bark where this creature had been standing by the tree. And within a few months of his return to home from Skinwalker Ranch, every member of his family had experienced blue orbs in the home, seen the dark humanoid creatures in their bedrooms, and heard multiple sounds of footsteps around the house at night. All of this because their father and husband, Jonathan Axelrod, works at Skidwalker Ranch. Right, right. Yeah, and this is interesting because and it's interesting because these guys are military people. They were recruited or assigned to a particular duty for a particular reason. And there are no slouches when it comes to you know, being aware of their surroundings, doing their job, whatever the job happens to be. Yeah. 
they know to, they know how to deal with that. So to find themselves in this position where just because of that particular job now they have begun, you know, their whole family is suffering from these other things. In the Astonishing Legends podcast, one of the authors that they interview is George Knapp, and he said, he makes it very, very clear, he said, look, the things that we have here in this book are documented by the people who were there. He said, this stuff, we didn't make any of this up. These are not apocryphal stories. This stuff happened. This is what these people say they saw, say they experienced. Yeah. Well, there's another instance of blue orbs in the state of Oregon that they investigated. And this instance happens, this instance happens to uh, basically what he calls a brilliant 40-year-old biotechnologist named Ron Becker, which is not his real name. It's a pseudonym. And his daughter, as they're driving on Highway 20 at night in May of 2005. This is, this is interesting. This is and I'll tell you why I think this is interesting later. So they're driving along, and Becker's daughter looks out the window as she is in a reclined position, evidently, and she notices three bright blue lights about 100 yards away in a nearby field, basically just moving around one another, she says, almost as if they were playing together. And so as she watches this in puzzlement, the three blue light orbs begin to move quickly towards their car. And within a few seconds, two of them fly directly through the back of the vehicle. One passed across the dashboard in front of their father and daughter, or in front of both of them, before exiting the car through the window. And as the daughter just watches all of this in terror, the second one actually enters the upper left arm of her dad, passed through his upper body at chest level and exited his body at the level of his bicep. The daughter had witnessed the exit of the blue orb from her father's shoulder. So after one of the bath scientists debriefs Becker, he remembered feeling a sense of movement as the blue orb entered his body and knew that something very bizarre was happening to him. And he said everything became kind of blurred and hazy. And he recalled being fixated on the horrified expression of his daughter's face. He says after the blue orb exited his upper right arm, he looked in time to see the blue light while moving away from his car about a distance of 100 feet. And here's where things get worse. Minutes after this incident, Becker begins to feel ill and nauseated. He says even uh, malaise sets in. He feels very scared, but he's too scared to stop driving. Evidently, that night while he was asleep, he has this very unusual and vivid dream, and he recalls this unusual face surrounded by a light saying to him, okay, we're going to fix all this, while a finger in front of him, in front of his face, applies pressure on his left shoulder. Four hours later, he wakes up feeling completely refreshed and rejuvenated. He goes to a conference. At this conference, he begins to feel dizzy and nauseated. And he said that shortly after the conference ended, he notices a red rash on the left side of his face. He notices that he's losing his hair. Uh, He gets swelling in his ankles. 
and he reports visual problems out of his left eye. In the weeks following the Blue Orb incident, he begins to gain weight, tries to watch his diet, but it's just not working out. He even goes to work out, but he's not losing any weight. He continue. He basically begins at like 155 pounds, and he beefs up to 200 pounds after all this happened. As a result of this, he gets diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS, in his left chest in February of 2007. This is crazy. <laughs> but it's also very demonic in my judgment. In yeah. fact, I don't see how there could be any other conclusion. Right. I say that this is interesting to me because on two or three occasions, I've not seen blue orbs, but I've seen white ones. And I don't know if you remember when we told our own UFO stories when we were at the... At camp? Yes, that camp in southern mm-hmm. Indiana back in the yeah. late 90s. Yeah, right. I saw some there. I've even seen a couple of them around telephone poles. One One instance in our own neighborhood and then one instance while driving north on, on my way home from church one night. I saw one in the sky. Never did I have any thoughts about one of those crazy things coming at me. But isn't it interesting that this guy begins to suffer physical problems and basically has a demonic dream, right? Where some entity tells him, hey, I'm going to fix all this. And then he wakes up feeling refreshed only to find out that things get worse. If you ever get a chance, read Timothy Warner's book, Spiritual Warfare. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but Dr. Warner worked with animistic cultures as a missionary in Africa. I'm not sure what decade that was. He was over there for about 10 years. But one of the things he talked about was realizing that there were a lot of overlapping similarities between the culture he was working with, their religious beliefs, and some of the beliefs and phenomena associated with charismatic Pentecostal Christianity. One of the things he talks about is a guy coming to his office one day to see him while he was a professor. I believe he was a professor also at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, but I could be wrong about that. But he was a a professor somewhere. Yeah, he, he had a Ph.D., and he said, so basically, a guy came to see him one day and was suffering from intense depression to the point at which I think this guy was ready to kill himself. And as he continued his conversations with this guy, this guy said that he had gone to see a pastor who claimed to have the spiritual gift of healing. And this guy at the time had this horrible problem with one of his knees. There was all of the swelling. I don't, I'm sure he had been to see the doctor, but there was evidently nothing that the doctors could do for him at that time. So this guy goes to see this pastor who claims to have the spiritual gift of healing. This pastor lays hands on him and basically heals him. And then as soon as this guy's knee is healed, he said it was instantaneous. The swelling went away. He got up, walked around. There were no problems at all with that knee. But shortly thereafter, this guy begins to suffer with bouts of depression to the point at which 
he was ready to kill himself. He was so depressed. And Warner said, it sounds to me as if you have received a demonic healing, which the guy really struggled to accept at first. But he said, look, there's a relationship between your knee, your healing, and your depression. So he says, if you will renounce in prayer, in Jesus' name, this healing, if it was demonic, if this was not of the Lord, that the Lord take this demonic healing from you, mm-hmm. he says, I think your depression will leave you. And sure enough, this guy renounces this healing in Jesus' name. His depression leaves him immediately, and his swelled knee returns. Hmm. Now, I point that out because, you know, number one, I've, I've seen strange lights myself, but I have this story in the back of my mind that it sounds to me that although this guy Becker did not have someone who was empowered with the ability to perform d- demonic miracles, one of those demons came to him in his dream, said, I'm going to take care of this, only to find out that matters got worse. Right. Because it was satanic in origin. Right. All of this in the association with UAP. Right, right. <laughs> what our what our culture and our establishments and our institutions would like to say is extraterrestrial or extra dimensional, but nobody wants to say, well, it's spiritual. Yeah. Don't want to say that. It's it's of an e- it's of an evil nature. Mm-hmm. There's another instance of blue orbs which actually incinerate the rancher's dog. I don't know if you heard about this in your Mm-mm. podcast with Astonishing Legends, but the original, the owner of Skinwalker Ranch before Robert Bigelow bought it had an instance where he saw these blue orbs on his ranch. I believe it was in September of 1996. And this instant happened before the rancher actually sold just months before he sold it to Bigelow. So this, this instance was evidently so traumatic on him. And I can understand why that him and his wife decided to sell the ranch because this was just like the last straw. So this guy who in the book goes by the name of Gorman, he's outside in May of 1996 with his, with his dogs. And he notices these baseball sized blue orbs maneuvering close to the ground in a large field beside his homestead. So his dogs see these orbs, they go after them, and the orbs begin to retreat and go off into the woods so that he can no longer see the orbs and he can't see his dogs, but he can hear them. Well, the next thing he knows, his dogs are just yipping and howling and there's these high-pitched yelps and then everything just stops. There's silence. And so he does not go into the area where his dog disappears immediately. He actually goes out the next day and he finds these these three areas of round, very dried out vegetation that have these huge three black greasy clumps in the middle of a circle. Or there's like three circles of this dried vegetation and within each one of those three circles is this are these black lumpy ground greasy messes where these orbs evidently just immediately incinerated these dogs 
<laughs> Isn't that just crazy? And this yeah. is this, yeah. And this is what we want to study, huh? Yeah. yeah this is yeah. what we want to study as an institution. Yeah. Well, there's another instance. This is this also goes back to the idea of taking something home with you. There were some black figures which appeared in the bedrooms of people associated with the researchers of Skinwalker Ranch. There's an instance where this lady by the name of Juliet Witt is out at Skinwalker Ranch with some of these big wigs. Uh, I believe Robert Bigelow was there. Even uh, Luis Elizondo was there at this time. And she reports that when she visited Skinwalker Ranch, she began to have, she had some of her own problems. It says, um, it says a few weeks after Bigelow and Kelleher learned that Witt, who had this very eventful visit at Skinwalker Ranch, was just the beginning of her own problems, a frightening phenomena that penetrated her own, her own home in Virginia. So we're going from Utah out to Virginia. So she evidently reports that within a week, within a week after she arrived back at her home, her roommate woke up screaming in the middle of the night about two o'clock. She hears him yelling in the adjacent bedroom that there was something standing over his bed. So, you know, all the lights get turned on and there's nobody in his room. And it takes a few hours for him to eventually calm down. They also hear footsteps as a result of her experiences out at the Skinwalker Ranch. Her roommate is just hysterical over all of this. A week later, she, she again uh, evidently gets in, in touch with uh, Colm Kelleher and reports that on a previous night, she was slowly backing out of her driveway when this gigantic bird, which looked like an oversized owl, swooped down out of nowhere and literally attacked her car. So this huge bird dives down. It, it evidently makes a couple of bombing runs towards her car to the point that the talons of this bird actually scratch up the paint job on her car. And so this... You know, she's got uh, black figures appearing to her roommate. They both hear footsteps. Now a giant owl begins to attack her. So on top of all this, in her town home, they they begin to experience basically what they would call poltergeist activity. Uh, her and her roommate are in the living room, evidently sharing a bottle of wine, when two wine bottles suddenly fly off the wine rack hurl across the room right in front of them and smash against the opposite wall, creating a mess. And so her roommate just freaks out and he eventually just moves out. So she also reports that she frequently awoke to find a black shadow like figure in her bedroom near her bed. And she also began to see, guess what? Different colored orbs in her home. And she was adamant that prior to her visitation at Skinwalker Ranch, she had never experienced anything like this in her life. But it's all as a result of being there at Skinwalker Ranch. It followed them home. That is just... <laughs> all of this under the guise of we're going to go investigate 
UAPs. Yeah, which which actually actually leads me to ask a question that maybe should come at the end of another podcast: Is are they still doing that? Are they still studying that? Well, Robert Bigelow sold the place to a guy whose name I cannot remember, but he essentially invited the History Channel in to do a weekly series on which they've been doing. Yeah, and I have not really watched any of that. I'm not really into what do you call that kind of television? Reality TV. Yeah, reality TV. It's, it's, not, it's not doesn't exactly qualify as it is documentary, but it's not. I always think that documentaries that come to no conclusions are interesting. Yeah, like, like what's that one they do? What's it, Oak? Oh, uh, Beyond Oak Island and Oak Island. Yeah. <laughs> have they ever found anything in that hole? They have found some things, but they've never yeah. found what they were looking for. Like the pot they just found no, yeah. That <laughs> rainbow, that rainbow goes way down on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what I think is amazing is that somebody bothered to go to all this trouble to do some of that. Some of the engineering, I've watched that. Some of the engineering that they've encountered there is just kind of like, this is crazy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, I once heard uh, one of the members of uh, Finding Bigfoot say that, you know, their job was not to find Bigfoot. Their job was to sell ads. <laughs> <You know>? and, <laughs> At least they're being honest about it, right? Yeah, yeah. He said, he said you know, if we had had some, although they had some unusual things that they caught on audio, caught on camera, some things that their cameraman and crew encountered. But while they were out in another part of the woods, you know, the guys back at the base camp were getting the bejabbers scared out of them. But the uh, their conclusion, you know, kind of was, and it's interesting, that it seems to me like all reality TV shows kind of do this. They very rarely, very rarely come up with an answer. Yeah. That wraps it up, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe the end of the show. I don't think that's why. <laughs> I think, I think that there's no model that allows for that. You know, they don't really have enough to go on. Whatever the show is, you know, don't really have right. enough to go on. Don't really have enough. It's interesting. People pay attention to it. It sells an ad. It does whatever, but. Uh, or or it allows people like in Finding Bigfoot. They did they, all to me. The thing that was always interesting was the town hall meetings that they would hold, and people would relate mm. their stories. Yeah, that was that's Hopefully. to me what was interesting. Hopefully, no one was being passed in like a twenty. Hey, would you get up and tell your story for this twenty dollar bill? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it, it's 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 a, a a weird thing to think about that. Yeah, those things typically end up on TV, but. I often think that part of the reason for that is there isn't a model that allows for it, but also sometimes we might not like the yeah the viewers might not like the end result. Well, I'm going to end with one more story, and that is this investigation that was done out in Legal, California, which is obviously not in Utah, but bass workers, OSAP workers were sent out to investigate so it's this place out in california and a gentleman looks up into the sky evidently and he sees a silver gray and blue flash appear a blue flash disappear into an opening in the sky let let, let me just back up and read this in fact let me just do this segment over again because that that didn't sound very good i'm going to 
close with this last story from a place in California that's called the Lagol California Investigation. It's this small community in Ventura, California, which immediately following the 4th of July in 2009, they say all hell breaks loose on this 20-acre property in the middle of the township. During this period of high strangeness, four separate witnesses were involved. One is the Scarsdale family. So I'm just going to highlight this one section and then run through this laundry list of things that they experienced out there. It says Roger arrives at home about 10.30 p.m. and listened to his family re excitedly recount the happenings of the previous few hours. Their family had had all these experiences. So his first and immediate desire was to revisit the scene. So within minutes, two guys, Buck and Roger, were walking the 500 feet or so from the porch slowly towards the center of the orchard, this orchard where they had these experiences, his family did. So Buck and Roger reached the area just before 11 p.m. where the three had heard the mysterious clicking sounds. As they were looking around, Roger saw a silver, gray, and blue flash disappear into an opening in the sky. Roger said in a numbed, deadpan voice, that didn't happen. Roger stood gazing speechless. Although it happened quickly, Roger later told investigators that the sky literally opened and a blue flash occurred as an oblong object appeared to enter the opening, which then closed quickly. Roger continued looking at the same area of the sky and reported seeing a swirling bluish residue. As the enormity of what they had seen hit him, he leaned over to his brother and hoarsely whispered, let's get out of here. I'll leave the expletive out. But there were all these strange happenings at this place in California, which they called the Lagol investigation. And here are some of the things that happened. The phenomena were very real. They had been witnessed by four separate Scar Scardale family members and three investigators from OSAP or Bass. So here's what they saw. Seven blue lights appearing like portholes, clicking noises, flash of light with possible aircraft entering it and disappearing. One blue light appearing like a porthole, Mr. Scarsdale being woken up and being compelled to go outside. Two blue lights with possible craft. Video was obtained. Red orbs and gray figure in video of a truck. Video being erased. Six to eight light orbs in the sky. Camera changing to demo mode and video being erased. Dark craft like object in the sky and photos taken depicting contrails and images of faces. So interesting, out at this place, not only did they have orbs, but a creature being videoed, along with faces and data being deleted off of video cameras. Now, have you seen any of the documentaries that Stephen Greer has put out on his CE5 contact? Mm -mm, no, there is one documentary where they go out into the desert and through this CE5 contact method he has come up with, which is basically an occult 
method to contact evil spirits. Some film and pictures are taken as these people are sitting in lawn chairs around a campfire out in the desert. And sure enough, somebody photographs the face of an entity. It's, it's in this documentary. You, you, you can actually go and watch it. And here, Greer thinks that he has photographed the face of an alien, which he actually gives a name to. And of course, they have really good video of basically these lights in the sky. Clearly, they're, they're very clearly visible, moving in different directions. You can tell that they're not aircraft and they're not satellites. And they will move back and forth as no satellite or aircraft could. And they clearly get this thing on video. And then through their methods of trying to contact these, you know, what they think are aliens, they come up with a face on film that they give a name to and, you know, call an alien being. So I would really like to see maybe <laughs> the image of the faces to see if there's a comparison to the stuff that Greer is. The Greer, yeah. So before we move on to the infectious agent model for understanding UAP, the, off, the authors of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon come up with. We've talked about intense fear that they've experienced, black humanoid shapes, shadow-like figures, wolf-like creatures, footsteps in the house, UFOs, all being part of this paranormal phenomena people experienced at the ranch or their family members experienced at home as a result of their dads, for example, like Jonathan Axelrod working at the ranch. Another instance, there's this creature, the shape of a 150-pound pig. I can't say that. A 150-pound <laughs> pig that has beaver-like qualities. And these dinosaur-like spines on its back that they see walking within 30 feet of them that walks with no apparent sound from its movement, which is just crazy. It walks right past a group of researchers. We talked about the gigantic bird that looked like an owl that attacked the woman's car, the blue flash opening up in the sky, brooding, bright floating lights. There was also an object with two bright lights on either side of it, hovering 25 feet off the ground, and a small humanoid figure videoed adjacent to it. There was a black object with no lights, and then there was all this drainage of batteries in their equipment that happened as a result of working on the ranch. All of it's just bizarre. All of this in the effort to study UAP. Makes no sense if UFOs, UAPs are just extraterrestrial biological. Right. These are the, these are other phenomena associated with that. And, you know, as you're going to talk about here, some of these things Sometimes just the study of that seems to become a catalyst or an infectious agent for passing something along to family members and friends when you get home from the job that day. Yeah. Well, they pose the question in Chapter 9, Bringing Something Home, could Skinwalker Ranch be the source of an infectious agent? This is a great question. They write on page 85, it should be noted that the symptoms of infection from Skinwalker Ranch are not respiratory distress or death, as with COVID-19, 
but rather profoundly altered perceptual environments. Things changed in people's homes as a result of their family members working at Skinwalker Ranch. But regardless, they say of the epidemiological model that they come up with, the central point is that the OSAP Bass program on Skinwalker Ranch was the first to unmask a transmission-like phenomena that was occurring in individuals who visited the ranch and that this transmission is profoundly amenable to analysis utilizing standard infectious disease or social contingent modeling. Further, in some cases, the transmission into some households was correlated with the emergence of autoimmune disease in family members. So not only did workers at the ranch bring home something that affected their families and even the friends of their family members, but so also came along with it, the emergence of autoimmune disease. Have you heard this? You and I had talked about this once before, that there seems to be something that can be connected with, uh, with the experiences. Yeah. So not only did this happen, this greater, bigger picture of bringing something home happened to Jonathan Axelrod, but it also happened to George Knapp, the KTLAS reporter, I believe, is the name of his TV station. It also happened to him. It also happened to Robert Bigelow, Juliet Witt, James Lukaski, and Combe Kelleher. And on page 83, there's this great quote from an episode of Mystery Wire, which is a podcast that George Knapp hosts. He says, in January of 2021, in an interview on Mystery Wire, Bigelow opened up about this phenomena to George Knapp. And he says, quote, well, yeah, so hitchhikers, being that you take, you take things home with you. Everybody took things home with them. I took things to my house. Things happened to my wife and to me in different places. So everybody took something home. But we didn't know that, gee, it was going to be a kind of permanent thing. We didn't know that it was going to stay with you for maybe years and years or the rest of your life. Who knows? End quote. Crazy. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. All in the effort to study UAP, UAPs. Now, it should be noted that Robert Bigelow for decades has had an interest in basically two things. One is the mystery of human consciousness and two what happens to people after they die all for an effort all for the effort of or all for the purpose of gaining knowledge to comfort people who are suffering while they are dying now it's interesting to me that he would he would research this the way that he has and it makes me wonder if he has any judeo christian teaching in his background at all and does if he George had Knapp, does does james lakatsky does anybody associated with this right because you get the impression that if they did they might kind of go back to that as a possible source for figuring out what's going on with them and and moving forward but excuse me but it, they they seem to not do that they seem to view this as something that isn't rooted in 
what would be skewed, what would be addressed from maybe maybe from their perspective, what would be addressed as a religious problem or a spiritual problem. They want to address it as psychological, psychic, metaphysical, cosmic, but nobody wants to say, uh, maybe this is a spiritual issue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we keep coming then, back to that conclusion, don't we? Yeah, yeah, because and and part of that seems to be because of what that implies, right? And maybe that's what people don't accept. When you accept that something might, when you consider at least the possibility that something might be a spiritual issue, and have to look at it from that perspective, then you have to look at the power associated with the source of the issue and the power associated with the possible solution. Yeah. Well, that. UAP is associated with paranormal phenomena is nothing new to us, at least to right. the two of us. Yeah. But it is associated with the witnesses, get this, to the Tic Tac sightings off the USS Nimitz, the right. USS aircraft carrier Nimitz, back in the mid-2000s. There was also another car carrier whose name I cannot remember. But they experienced phenomena as a result. The pilots, yeah. Of those experiences. Yeah. Now, for our listeners, ATIP refers to Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. OSAP refers to Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program. And BASS refers to Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies. Those are a lot of initials yeah. to keep in mind. But when NIDS, which is the National Institute for Discovery Science, when NIDS and OSAP and other investigators interviewed eyewitnesses in northeastern Utah, in Dulce, New Mexico, in the San Luis Valley of Colorado, around Malstrom Air Force Base in Great Falls, Montana, in Yakima, Washington, in the Hudson Valley, New York, or in the Marley Woods, Missouri area, the metallic UAP regularly occurred along with paranormal phenomena and psychic effects on witnesses. Without disclosing confidential information, the authors of this book can say that this pattern also applied to Tic Tac pilots, as well as select members of ATIP. Isn't this interesting? So the fact that you could see it on your radar, maybe flying and pursuing mm -hmm. it, actually led to something sort of going home with you. Yes. And those are well-documented videos, those right. gun cameras, if that's what they call them, on those, those jets picked up. So there's this overlap between what appears to be nuts and bolts, UAP phenomena, and paranormal consequences, right? I did not know this. But on page 162 of this book, evidently, it's it, and he's, here's what he says. He says, it's not widely known that Kenneth Arnold who became known as the father of the modern-day UFO era, when he had his sighting of chevron-shaped metallic objects in June of 1947, also subsequently saw balls of light or orbs in his home, as well experienced a litany of paranormal events unfolding in his life after his epoch-making sighting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. I had no idea that that happened until I read this book. And that has always been the, the, the sighting, the report, the event that started the modern UFO wave. And we find that there was always 
paranormal phenomena associated to it. And yet that has never been part of the narrative. Right. It would be interesting to now go back and look at UFOs in the National Security State Volume 1 and see if Dolan even pointed that out, because I don't think he did. No, and and they tended to stay away from those things even in the recordings, I think, or for the uh, studies that Blue Book did and some of the other civilian agencies. They might make a note of it, but their primary focus was, it was almost like it was a secondary thing. Because the presumed conclusion to the sighting of a UAP is that it's ours, it's another government's, or it's extraterrestrial. Mm-hmm. There's only those three options. Yeah, only and, those three options. Yeah, and when our government says we don't know what it is, and we don't think one of the other foreign governments is, everybody says, well, it's ET. Well, people, if you conclude that it's ET, then you automatically begin to question other assumptions or maybe beliefs that you had or things that you were taught when it comes to religion and faith and the existence of the supernatural. Because if it's E.T., then you, you some people, I think, unconsciously adopt the Star Trek thesis mm-hmm. that any technology, if it's far enough advanced, would appear to be, uh, how, how do they put it? They, it would appear to be magic or supernatural in power, but it's really just technological. And actually, there's no no real basis for that line of thinking. But There was a report... And I cannot remember the name of the foundation that put it out. I think it they did it in the 60s. It'll come to me as soon as we're done talking about it. But one of the implications of their research was that should UFOs prove to be extraterrestrial, this will prevent present a big problem for the major religions of the world. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that... Yeah. The the extraterrestrial hypothesis, as we have come to understand it, has always said this is this is going to be a big problem for the major religions of the world. Should disclosure actually happen, right? The governments of the world or just our government comes out and says extraterrestrials are real. And we've known this for over 50 years now. And yeah, it looks like, you know, the big religions are going to have a problem with this when there has always been a strong spiritual phenomenon tied to it. <laughs> what a great lie to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Mask. Go ahead and just mask the other half of the phenomena. Put out the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Tell the major religions of the world, you're going to have a problem with this someday when it comes out that all this is true. Yeah. When yeah. it was duplicitous, deceptive. Yeah. The whole time. Right. When it's actually the other way around, that the other, the people who have, you know, both fostered and pursued the ET hypothesis are going to have a problem with things when they come out, when there's kind of a end of times and a final judgment and everybody gets called up and uh, asked, so what did you believe? You know? Yeah. And that's, that's the other side to that issue. Who's Um, going to have the final say? Yeah. You know? Well, evidently, in a recent book published by Jacques Vallée, I cannot remember the name of this book, but I think this is the one that deals with the Trinity UFO crash. I think this is the book that he wrote with Paola Harris that he has taken a lot of grief for, and this may be why. On page 162, they they write that there was a 
an episode of the 1940s that we know through renowned astrophysicist and computer scientist Jacques Vallée, whose book details the investigation of the alleged crash of a UAP in August of 1945. The crash was located approximately 20 miles from the New Mexico Trinity test site where the first atomic bomb was exploded. Fowley's book contains 12 separate references to alleged psychic effects reported by the young eyewitnesses of the UAP crash. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 12 psychic effects as a result of a UFO, UAP crash. I wonder if that's why he's taking so much grief for that. It makes me want to go ahead and get that book and read it. People are fine with thinking that aliens have mind powers. People are not fine with the idea that spiritual entities have mind powers. <laughs> you know, th right. they're not comfortable with that. Yeah. Well, let me end with one interesting an anecdotal story. You remember the psychokinetic practitioner, Yuri Geller? Oh, yes. Do you remember that name, Yuri Geller? Yep. Well, on page 87, evidently, Yuri Geller was undergoing a series of tests on his psychic abilities at this prestigious Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And as a result of this, there's a series of bizarre events that begin to unfold in the lab itself and in the homes of the scientists who were conducting the studies. Author Jim uh, Schnebel, in his Engaging History of American Psychic Spy, says he recounts the bizarre series of events that unfolded at the lab when scientists began to measure Yuri Geller's alleged psychic abilities, psychic, alleged psychic abilities. Um, Schnabel writes, Peter Crane, who was a team leader, a PhD scientist, uh, and so on and so forth, and some of the others at the Livermore Group Laboratory quickly found themselves also involved in more strangers than, than they could handle. In the days and weeks that followed, they began to feel that they were collectively possessed by some kind of tormenting teasing, hallucinating, inducing spirit. They all would be in a laboratory together setting up for some experiment, or one of the fellows and his wife and children would be at home just sitting around when suddenly there in the middle of the room would be a weird, hovering, almost comically stereotypical image of a flying saucer. On the other hand, the saucer, saucer wasn't the only form the Livermore visions took. There were sometimes animals, fantastic animals, from the ecstatic lore of shamans, such as the large raven-like birds that were seen going through the yards of several members of the group. One of them appeared briefly to a physicist named Mike Russo and his terrified wife. The two were lying around one morning when suddenly there was this giant bird staring at the two of them at the foot of their bed. After a few weeks of this, Russo and some of the others began seriously to wonder if they were losing their minds. Other scientists and their families saw orbs and black shadowy forms in their homes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Livermore, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, all as a result of studying Yuri Geller. And they took something home. Do you remember when you and Ray and I went to Point Pleasant, West Virginia? Mm -hmm. Because we had, you and I had been having these long conversations about 
the Mothman of Point Pleasant. Right. And the spiritual phenomena, evil phenomena associated with that. Out of reading the book, The Mothman Prophecies by... Robert, uh, Keel, John Keel. Yes, John Keel. Mm-hmm. The first night that we were gone, do you remember me telling you after we got back? Yeah. Had an, had an image of somebody wearing a camouflaged hat hovering over her face in her bed. Ooh. Now, do you remember what you were wearing on that trip? No, huh? You were wearing a, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, oh, that. It, uh... it, 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 it wasn't a baseball hat, a camouflaged baseball hat. It was one of those 360 degree rim. Yeah, it was one I bought in Mexico. Yeah. yeah. Soft camouflage hats. Right. Yeah. And I wonder if some evil spirit said, oh, so Jay and Mike want to uncover the the evil aspects of the Mothman prophecies mm. and bring Christ into the picture. I don't want to hear that. I think I'll do something about that. I, I really believe that that's, that's what that was about. Could be, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that. Well, you know what um, OSAP's conclusions were? No. Oh, wait a minute. I was going to tell you. But, uh, it, <laughs> another... <laughs> another reality well, show that really never touches on reality um, comes to any conclusions. <laughs> That's great. And another reality show that doesn't really yeah, touch on reality. Yeah. In an expedition, I mean, excuse me, uh, you know, I watched Josh Gates' Expedition Unknown because I think he's funny. And yeah. he does some some interesting things, and some, but he has another, he had another series called Expedition X, uh-huh. in which he combined a kind of a Mulder and Scully kind of thing. He had a woman who was the paranormal researcher and kind of everything was out there and then mm-hmm. or everything goes and then the guy who was the scientist and they they go to these different places they went to the area that um the original mothman sightings uh, took place in the tnt area and while they were there a lot of that area and this i, I think is since you and i and ray were there has since been flooded Oh, and really? yeah, it's under it's underwater now. You can't get in, and uh, some of the water is even kind of, it's kind of a waste. It's not to- It's I, they use the word toxic. It seems to me when they talk because they boated through it. Oh, of course, at night. Why would you go in the daytime? Um, they they <laughs> yeah. Uh, they so they go in there, but they're, they're everything's underwater. Uh, some of it is not. And if you remember when you and Raya and I went out there. There had been an incident, what, less than a year earlier where they had closed off the area again because one of those bunkers exploded. Do you remember that? I remember that. Yeah, it was in the newspapers. So some of it had been closed off. Of course, we went anyway. But the, uh, (laughs) and went in, kind of, and didn't go in real far, but went in a little bit. But it was interesting to me then that sometime after that, uh, the area, I don't know if the area that we were in was flooded. Maybe the flooding had taken place earlier, but they show pictures of that area that they were developing because this was this was a, a place where they were developing explosives. Yeah. And some of those explosives, I think, then were shipped off to, because this was World War II area, era, were shipped off to the Manhattan Project because they were using tightly packed explosives to detonate the core uh, uranium core or whatever they were using. I don't know if it was uranium. Right. It was at the core of uh, the two original bombs, but um, but I believe some of that was developed there. And not far from there, they were doing 
in another area called Canaan Valley. They were doing test flight runs. That, that's where they had bomber pilots training. That was, you know, all, all that in that area down there. But all that to say that now a lot of that is, is underwater. So you yeah. can't go in there. can't get in there anymore. Yeah. To some of those places. Yeah. Yeah. Well, OSAP's conclusions are that there's no overarching explanation for this whole phenomena. They have essentially no idea what explanation could be provided that would explain all of this. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. And that makes me wonder, do the authors of this book just simply not know of the relationship between this phenomena and the occult? Or do they simply not want to go down that road? Right. And if the latter is the case, that's interesting because they're sticking their fingers in the eye, so to speak, of those that reject their observations and data and conclusions for not wanting to research this any further. And yet if they themselves are not willing to follow the trail where it leads, they're basically guilty of doing the same thing they accuse others of. They don't, they don't really want to know. They don't really right. want to investigate it. Interesting. Yeah. Which is kind of sad because that ultimately that's going to lead, it's going to lead other institutions and other people into this idea that everything associated with UAP phenomena is ET and, and lead people away from the possibility that maybe all of what's associated, if not everything, but most or all of what's associated with UAP is not ET, but spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, as a result of reading this book, I'm halfway through reading Hunt for the Skinwalker, the book published in 2005. And we would like to come back in a future episode and present our framework for understanding this phenomena and how Jesus Christ is actually the resolution to the very deeply disturbing and evil component of UFOs and UAP. Right. Yeah. That'd be a good one. Yeah. Well, any other closing thoughts as I bang on my desk? Uh, no. I think we've covered a lot of material, and uh, the research that you've done in the reading with that is extensive. The idea that the possible conclusion that things are spiritual rather than extraterrestrial is something that mainstream, not only, main, you know, it's not just mainstream science is always much of mainstream science, not all, but much of mainstream science has rejected faith and religion as an as a truth, you know, yeah. as truth. As, as a truth claim. Right. And now it's not just science that rejects that, but the uh, the paranormal research world, research world also rejects that. Yeah. So not much that can be said about that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, there's everybody has to come to their everybody is responsible for making their own decision coming to their own conclusion. Yeah. All we can do is present an alternative and ask people to consider it. Yeah. So present the truth, the rest of the truth. The rest of the story is Paul Harvey would say. Right, exactly. Well, that is all for this episode, everybody. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks for listening. Take care. And we'll be back.
Oh, my God. 